A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Learnings from implementing data mesh at a large healthcare company. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Mike Alvarez, former VP of Digital Services, leading the data mesh implementation at a large healthcare distribution company. He's now working on his own startup. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Mike's point of view. Number one, lean into the new value-creating possibilities that can come from empowering thousands of your colleagues to leverage data. There's a lot of new things that could come from that, so lean into it. Number two, as an industry, we have to learn to do data work in an incremental fashion. This comes up in so many episodes. It's not been the norm, and it can break people's perception of data work, but it's crucial to get where we want to go, so we have to figure out how we get past those kind of blocks. Number three, You can drive data mesh buy-in from domains by showing them the freedom they will have. Autonomy, empowerment, especially going at their own speed, etc. You can get them, many of them, to lean in from kind of showing them what could happen. Number four, kind of advice to past data mesh self. Early in your journey, you can share your vision until the cows come home and people will say they understand and probably think they understand but it's incredibly easy to get misaligned. Really focus on what you are trying to achieve. What are the target outcomes? Number five, similarly, it will be harder than you expect to drive buy-in. Many people say that, but it's still probably going to be harder than you expect after hearing that. Scott note here as well. And that buy-in doesn't get doesn't stay bought in. You're going to have to keep 
even winning over the same people and keep pushing at it. Number six, we need to move away from old approaches to data for large companies because the sheer scale of initiatives ends up creating bloat and risk factors unto themselves. Just because of the way things work, you end up kind of overloading every project. Small and nimble gives us quicker time to value delivery and builds to much greater outcomes. Number seven, shadow IT develops to try to move at the speed of business for domains, but it's rarely scalable or robust enough to even support the domain in the long run. And it certainly isn't built to integrate well with the rest of the organization. Try not to hold past shadow IT decisions against those domains as you're moving towards data mesh. Number eight, most teams, especially pre-data mesh, don't truly understand the data they are even ingesting. It's on consumers to get more information, but if the producers aren't helping then, teams will ingest what they can even if they don't fully understand it. Data they don't understand well drives value, but could be driving so much more value and there's much higher risk to it. Number nine, start from the problem first. What am I trying to solve? Do I need a new approach or can I use something I already have? Don't reinvent the wheel, but we might just have to reinvent doing data at scale, a la data mesh. Number 10, collect stories of past attempts internally with negative outcomes, right? What were the common reasons, the common patterns for things failing or not delivering expected value? Those are useful for perspective and to drive buy-in. Hey, it would be insanity to keep trying to do the same thing if we expect different results from doing this same way. Number 11, treating data as a product makes more and more sense the deeper you dig into it. But just doing data as a product can't survive on its own as an approach to doing data. You know, Scott, note this is where Jamax says, hey, you know, data as a product is great, but if you don't do these other aspects of data mesh, it's not really going to get you that far. Number 12, when trying to share information about data mesh, it's not like everyone will instantaneously understand or be on board. It will likely take a while in most organizations to build up the momentum to even consider starting on a data mesh journey. Have patience, build up that momentum. Number 13, data mesh really enables teams closest to the customer, closest to the day-to-day business to drive more value through data. It allows them to react much more quickly as the world evolves and focus on the problems of the customer. Number 14, potentially controversial, the operating model change with data mesh is what drives the real value. And lots of domains can get bought in that they can get to their own, get to own their own destiny, but be empowered to manage their data like a product instead of in this non-scalable and quickly deteriorating ways that they have been doing with shadow IT. Scott note here, I think we need to do We need better tech to fully leverage the potential of data mesh. But right now, I agree the most of the value of data mesh that I'm seeing from organizations is driven by the operating model changes. We do need tech to change so that we can actually get to the whole uh, kind of vision. That's the whole data value chasm that I've started to talk about a little bit. Number 15, a shared vision of what you are trying to achieve is important. It lets people rally around something and start to build the community, which is crucial to delivering on a data mesh approach. 
Number 16, potentially controversial. Don't try to force your domains, your lines of business to leverage your centralized tooling and comply with optional governance. Of course, there is non-optional governance, right? In exchange for those who leverage central tooling, kind of pay them back via automating away their toil where possible. Look for their friction specifically, not just the friction of everybody. Community is about give-get. Be a good member of that community, and when somebody's giving to you, they get something from you. Number 17, the three crucial dimensions of product, viability, feasibility, and desirability. When adopting product thinking, you should think about does your product satisfy all three factors. Number 18, you need to communicate when something isn't feasible. Too often in data, people have just said no instead of no, and here is why. Let people in on your thinking and prioritization process around what work to do and when. Number 19, good product management skills are necessary to understand data as a product. To transition us from creating and sharing data sets to sharing high-value information exchanged via a data product. You need to delve into and understand the domain to figure out what would be most useful to share via a data product. Number 20, I think this one is controversial. It might be time to completely let go of the concept of that kind of quote-unquote single source of truth. We've been chasing it in data for so long, but the cost-benefit is starting to look like it doesn't make sense, right? Even if you can get there, what is really the benefit? What are we trying to achieve? Perfect data or a strong understanding of the world and how it's changing? Scott Note here, strongly agree on this. So does Jamak. Like that single source of truth is hampering you much more than it's helping you, even if you can get there. And finally, number 21, new, more correct information about aspects of the business is it's not always welcome. Unfortunately, you might have pushback if you attempt to tackle a problem that changes people's view of their business. So choose use cases, especially early, well. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Mike Alvarez here, who's formerly the VP of digital services at a large healthcare distribution company, uh, where he was leading the data mesh journey there. Uh, We're going to be talking about a lot of different things, including kind of how do we actually think about decentralizing control of of data and and data governance specifically when it's kind of been scary? It's it's something that a lot of people in data governance specifically are are very afraid of, of giving over that control and managing the balance between autonomy, but also really trying to support domains that don't know how to do data mesh yet. So how do we make it so that they we can help them to not fail. How do we support them, but also give them the ability to kind of go and, and do their own thing? And, you know, how in general, historic solutions, as much as we, a, a lot of folks are pretending that they they did, they just were meeting scaling 
limits for a while now. And people didn't really actually understand the data in a lot of cases. And then just in general, we're going to go into kind of lessons from building out a, a data mesh platform at more of a, a steady type of company, right? Uh, more conservative where you didn't get to just do absolutely anything you wanted. Like <laughs> it feels like some organizations can. So, but before we get to that, Mike, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for having me, uh, first and foremost, and thanks for all you do for the data mesh community. Um, I know it is a, there's a great, uh, great, pretty vibrant community out there that I think really wants to help people um, and understand how to how to adopt this different type of uh, operating model and how we deliver deliver outcomes for customers and businesses. But um, yeah, so a little bit about you know kind of my journey to date is is um, you know, started out as a as a engineer. A lot of C++ back in the day, uh, did consulting, did a startup, uh, did 10 years at a large international uh, financial services company, and then about almost another decade in a, in a large healthcare distribution company. Um, and now I'm actually uh, working on something that's a bit in stealth mode, so maybe I can share more uh, in a little bit. But um, it's, it has something to do with generative AI, I'll say that. But, and, and hopefully um, data mesh will still be part of that, uh, that as well. So that's a little bit about me and my background. Awesome. Great. And and so I think let's talk a little bit about that kind of at the beginning of, you know, you're in a, a healthcare distribution company, right? Not, not known for being the most aggressive, not known for being the most agile, especially as you get larger and larger, right? Um, and that there has been kind of that central command and control type of, of approach. So why don't we talk a little bit about how data mesh came up and how you started to to work with people to reduce that fear of this potential change, right? You know, you, you recently did a panel as well with with uh, the the podcast, and we're talking about some of that as well. Of how how did you have those conversations? How did you get people kind of comfortable that? we could do this new approach when it's something that is more kind of still bleeding edge, right? That you're going to get some cuts from this. You know, I think it's, it's pretty brave to go out there in such a, <laughs> a type of company and do that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, that a story, how it came up and how you kind of started to head down that path. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think it's a challenge, um, honestly, that, that a lot of, especially larger companies share, um, in that, you know, we've we've been doing um, a kind of I'll, I'll start off with data and analytics first, but we've been doing uh, data and analytics um, in the same way for for thirty years, ever since maybe forty years, ever since Inman and Kimball, you know, de- developed those models for the data warehouse way back when, and um, so I've been you know part of those journeys in multiple companies. Um, and I think to some degree they they drive value, but I think um, I mean, what's the saying? It's it's a million dollars to my first report or something like that, right? So it just it takes an enormous amount of effort, and I think um, you know, in multiple companies, there's always this feeling of I have to have this single point of truth or the single source of truth. Um, and you know, I don't know if anybody has a measurement of how fast business changes, but especially now, I just think taking 18 months or a year or whatever it takes to get a you know, kind of get that solution stood up. Um, is this challenging because you know bis- business just moves on from it, um, or the business just you know is is a kind of victim to the speed of their customers and everything else around them. 
So the business really has to move at a, a much more rapid pace. Um, you know, and so something I've heard over time is, well, that that team, that centralized team, just doesn't meet my needs. If you if you go talk to teams on the business side, and then that's very often why they build up their kind of their their shadow IT, so to speak, you know, um, resources, so they can they can do that um, that work themselves. And I don't I don't think there's any you know um, maliciousness or ill intent on either side. I think both want to really deliver value the company and their in their customers but i think ultimately what i've kind of personally witnessed and been part of is that these big these big centralized solutions um just fail to meet the demands of the business right because they don't change rapidly enough uh that this the centralized teams generally don't scale so you know and that, not saying they can't but i'm saying generally they don't if you look at the way amazon does their you know, the kind of the legendary two pizza team approach. I mean, that's one of the main reasons they do that, right? They don't want a team of 100, 150, 200 people because um, ultimately it won't scale. You'll serve some of the bigger needs of the company, but some of the smaller, maybe even more important needs, uh, higher margin needs will go un, unmet. And then, and then thirdly, really, is the, um, the teams generally just don't understand the data that they're, um, they're ingesting. And I think you know, very often these teams look at data as a, as a byproduct, not data as a product. Um, and you know, kind of being on that side, I would say, no, no, I understand the data. But if you really get into the, you know, imagine a business domain in any company like like finance, you know, they really understand that financial data better than anybody could in that centralized technology team because they just they work with it day to day, right? They're entering the systems, they're uh, they're issuing transactions. So it's kind of unfair just think that a team that's kind of two or three levels removed from either the business or a customer, that they would truly understand the data at that, at that same level. Yeah. I think that, that, that kind of empathy with the central team of, Hey, we've been putting too much on you. This isn't going to, it's, it's not your fault that you don't scale. It's that the model literally can't because, you know, do you have people that are only assigned to specific uh, domains or whatever, so that you can build up that that um, knowledge of how that domain works. And what we've seen is that doesn't really even work from a central team because then they still get moved around based on priorities and everything just keeps shifting and things like that. And so you don't, if you're not aware of what the data means, owning the transformation and the processing and the storage and the serving and all of that, it just, you, you, <laughs> can't understand the context of what you're actually trying to do without diving really deep. And we just don't have the time on a central team because there's this massive, massive backlog. And and I I think Mm -hmm. one thing that you talked about there that I think is really, really important is the world changes and the business has to change relative to the world at that same speed where you get left further and further and further behind. So anything that has rigidity you know, mm-hmm. we, we wish that we could have things that were um, very, very easily scalable at, at the large level, but anything that becomes scalable becomes rigid, right? I mean, you, you look at the engineering marvel of like Taipei 101, which Taipei 101 is this very, very large building in, in downtown Taipei. I think it's 101 stories. I think that's why it's called that. But half the time, those buildings that have 100 stories actually only have like 60. It's bizarre because like they just... <laughs> add numbers to it they just pad but um 
it has to be able to sustain these massive, massive winds. So it has to be able to to flow and scale. But it's considered an engineering marvel because it spent, you know, they spent years and years and years testing and building this. And it, it has all of these um like I think it has this giant counterweight in the middle. So a huge amount of the real estate mm-hmm. is not even usable. So like, do we want that from the data when the the it's not just reacting to slight shifts that you know are going to happen in the winds? You know, the world is changing so quickly and, and to find and then extract value from opportunities and be quicker than the competition. It's not just even keeping up with, it's like being able to be quicker and and grab that value is, is so important. So I, I liked a lot of what you were saying there. Um, when you were, when you were talking to people about this, when you started to have these conversations, were people pushing back on you? Were people saying, no, this isn't the case or, you know, how did you get them kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the Dr. Strange love of how I, I learned to love the data mesh or whatever. Like, how did you, you kind of take them from this old school approach? Was it, Hey, we're going to deliver something to you and it's going to give you these capabilities and don't worry about it. Or were you really reading them in on stuff? Like how did that kind of work from, we can talk about the the domains and then I'd like to talk about the, the governance folks too, but like, let's start with kind of the domains themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I would say um, first, you know, in, in anything, it, it, not necessarily setting out to do it in a different way or with a different technology. Um, because um, I think that's kind of the, the wrong place to start, right? I think it's it's really looking at what problems are you trying to solve, and then you know can can I use something that already exists to solve that problem? You know, can I can I reuse you know either data platform or leverage an existing team um, to do, to deliver you know that specific business outcome? Um, you know, but but for me, I think you know you know something we've lo- kind of looked on or looked at is. I've paid a lot of attention to um, we call them kind of failure modes. Like, why did that last thing not work out? So over time, if you spend enough time at any company, you'll kind of see certain patterns of, and I wouldn't say they're they're true. Like maybe failures is too harsh of a word, but it's really just why things didn't meet you know the expectations um, fully, or why you know something um, only lasted X number of years, and we decided to replace it with something else. Um, and I think in collecting those, I wanted to make sure that anything that I, you know, that I was doing or that I do now really kind of considers those, the same kind of patterns of, of, um, you know, not working out so well. So, you know, kind of first applying that and then understanding what we're trying to do. And I think it, I became, you know, kind of pretty convinced that, uh, the way that we've done things in the past, uh, really wasn't going to serve, um, our customers going forward, right? And that's it, you know, kind of across multiple companies. So I think that, and again, we we talk to kind of reasons why I think there's the, um, there's often often the long lead times, right, to get work done. There's that centralized monolith that just, it's, you know, it, t- it doesn't have a, a good understanding of the data and doesn't scale as well. So I think starting off there, um, you know, a lot of organizations are now product-led. So I think that, you know, as I got into more of, Understanding, you know, I've been part of a product company in the past, but just kind of, I guess, reimmersing myself in kind of what what true product management is. You know, initially I thought, well, hey, treating data as a product is it just makes sense to me, right? So if I'm really thinking about, 
data as the product, then I'm then I'm really focused on what are the most important problems I need to solve with that data today, right? What are the most urgent needs um, in those dimensions around kind of product management, right? So you know feasibility, viability, uh, desirability, right? So if if I really think about that um, and data as a product lens, then we should you know it should be kind of I wouldn't say self-evident. It's not like things are going to magically evolve, but I think at least philosophically, I felt like if we took that approach, um, then if you had five different data products being created, you know, the ones that would survive and thrive would be the ones that would had the greatest demand, the greatest, you know, you know, feasibility, viability, uh, the ones that would, you know, kind of shrink and then maybe die or go away would be the ones that just didn't have as high demand. So it didn't. It, it wasn't a matter of you know what I was passionate about or what some certain person really wanted to see. It was more of taking that product approach. Um, so it's kind of how, how initially it started to take shape, and then um, started to, to to read about and hear about you know Jamek, you know, the, you know the data mesh approach, and um, and we've you know, I think we've all seen these various <laughs> things over time, lakes and fabrics and. And, you know, so initially I was thinking, okay, the data mesh is another one of these things. Um, but as I started digging into it, you know, just, it, it really felt fundamentally different. Right. Um, and so that was really the first thing was that hooked me was like, oh, you know, focusing on, you know, domain driven design, focusing on data as a product that made sense. And then, you know, kind of leveraging some of what, you know, Jamek could put together to figure out, okay, how do we, you know, how do we take this and shape it into something that's really valuable for the organization? Um, but I'll say there was, there was months worth of, um, you know, just kind of uh, validation, right? Trying to share this with people. Uh, you get all kinds of reactions, right? Some people instantly uh, will understand it and get it. Other people will, um, you know, just really, really, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the panel, but I've, I've, I've said for a long time, I just think anytime where you have, you, you have to understand the mental model that people are entering the conversation with. And in this case, I think the mental model is really one of centralization because you're really, until now, especially in the data world, hasn't really been too many decentralized solutions. I mean, blockchain is also kind of that way, uh, different pattern, but it's you know, similar from a, people don't really understand it. Like, how can you not have the thing in the middle that keeps everybody, you know, keeps the governance in place? Um, but I felt like, you know, the, the reason that data mesh really, I think one of the, the things that made the most sense to me was that you're really enabling teams, you know, that are closest to the customer, you know, to solve problems, you know, uh, you know, autonomously and empowering them with the tooling they need. That makes a heck of a lot of sense to me because they understand the customer, they understand the problems of the customer they're trying to solve, right? The, the centralized team, and again, it's not saying you should decentralize everything, but I think, you know, decentralization makes a lot of sense for a lot of different functions. But I think in this case, if you really want them to solve, you know, problems, build product, move as fast as they can, um, to me that you know the mesh or that decentralized pattern is is the only way to go. Yeah, I, a couple of things in there, but like that at that last point, you know, I come from distributed systems world, and one of the rules of distributed systems of people who aren't selling and are actually you know thinking about how they should be done it's if you don't need to distribute your systems don't distribute your dang systems right if you don't need to decentralize centralization scales until it doesn't right it is the right pattern for a lot of things until it isn't and it's always 
I mean, you know, you think about monolith versus microservices. If somebody's like starting with, you know, at the very start of their their company and is doing a bunch of stuff with microservices, it's usually overkill. It's it's almost always that this it's quicker to actually work in that monolith and then you plan to be able to split it out. You set yourself up to succeed, but that's but you know, with the 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 data as a product aspect, I think one thing that, that you didn't specifically say, but that I got that you were pointing at was the ability to raise issues and understand and, and you know, that this is an actual issue and does this matter? And why is this something that's, that's causing us to not realize as much value? The people that actually understand the value of this are the ones that are close enough to understand like what it's actually driving, what it's actually changing and and what is changing. And so we have to give them that that capability. I, I really like that. Um, did you find when you were going through a lot of this that that you know you said you were t- kind of talking about, hey, we're going to deliver you the capability to actually react to this, not we're doing data mesh. You know, I've talked about my unicorn farts theory, where if you're going to talk to a business person and say data mesh, you should say unicorn farts because hey, you're just going to have as much credibility and, you know, whatever. They don't care in a lot of cases how it's actually done. Did you find that that people were reacting um, well to you around this? Like, I am hearing you. I am hearing the actual problem and I'm trying to address the actual underlying cause of these problems or did you still kind of have that pushback a lot? Yeah, I mean, the I don't even know what the split of the audience would be, but it was, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a journey, right? And, and and what I would tell to your point, it's not it's it's really not even about the mesh. It's not even about, the, especially, it's not about the technology under the mesh or that it enables the mesh. It's it's really about to me. It was really about an operating model shift in an operating model, which I think was very meaningful. Um. And I think that was something that resonated, especially with a lot of, you know, kind of business partners where, you know, it's like, you mean I get to go do my own thing? And it's like, well, I mean, no, I mean, it's not like, again, back to the shadow IT. I'm not saying it's just shadow IT again, because uh, I don't think that's that's going to lead you to success either. But, there, you know, there's definitely this kind of middle area that we haven't explored very well between, you know, completely chaos, everybody go do their own thing and everything centralized. Um, and honestly, I think, Forecasting forward five years from now, I think the the companies that will be successful probably are the ones that can flex in between because like one of my old managers would say, he would say, you know, kind of the centralization really, it, it optimizes for cost. So sometimes, there, you know, for certain functions, you want to do that, right? You just want to kind of make it simple, you know, make it low cost, centralize it, everybody use it. You know, think something that comes to mind is like Okta, right? Or, or your security or just, you know, your, 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 Identity access management, right? I mean, don't get creative there, right? You'll just get yourself in trouble. Um, but other things where you're trying to meet, you know, a, you know, a swiftly changing market, et cetera, et cetera, then enable the teams, but do it in a, in a very, you know, I, I kind of think of it as more like a community, right? So everybody understands that they're going to go do their own thing. And again, not to use another Amazon quote, as far as I, you know, I know they, they're okay with du- some levels of duplication, two teams kind of chasing the same thing. Um, because they know ultimately they'll, they'll, you know, those things will consolidate. And I think, you know, just to kind of wrap that up, I think the, you know, five years from now, a team. That, so if you can have a team that's empowered, they go, they go develop something great. Um, but they maybe they, they unknowingly develop something that's 
valuable to five other internal teams. Well, then you got to figure out how do you, you know, kind of how, how do you centralize it, but also then um, provide that same level of autonomy to that, you know, that more centralized function now. But I just think that things are going to kind of go, you know, more of this way where they um, start kind of closer, you know, kind of to the edge, right? A lot of fast moving experimentation, see what works. Um, what works will live, what doesn't will die. And then you can see where you can reuse it from there. Yeah, that that ability to have failure in data hasn't been there because it's been such a high, like you talked about that million dollars to first report, it's been such a high cost of doing so much of the work because it's all been, you couldn't really incrementally build very easily. And now with you know cloud economics and things like that, and with a lot of the technology shifts, we can build that incrementally. And so that we can have fast fail and it's okay if things fail, right? Like we can measure, is this a value and, and have that, and that it's not nearly as much of a, a kind of hole in the ground. It's not a, a giant blast you, you can actually get something into people's hands and go, is this a value? And if it's not, you stop, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. okay. Like that's totally not an issue. So, um, I'd love to kind of talk about that uh, a little bit of what you touched on there, but of how do you make it so that people can go and do their thing? find their value, deliver on their value, but prevent them from failing. And also um, let's add in the extra complexity of how do you manage that interoperability? So it isn't just data data silos. It is like, hey, this is a cohesive effort so that you can integrate with other folks that your main point isn't necessarily you, the, the integration comes at the expense of the value that you're creating, but we still can't just say you go do all of your things and then nobody talks to each other because there's a reason why we have different business units together. If if we if it was a, if it didn't have any value to have these business units together, they'd be different companies. So there's a reason to have these together in this this organization. Yeah, I think um, I think you have to have a strong vision, you know, kind of for what you're trying to achieve. Why why are you taking this approach? Because again, not not everything should be a mesh. Um, and I think you, um, in, you know, we're still pretty early on in this journey you know, of data mesh, but I think you either have to have, I'm, I'm assuming there's companies out there that are probably just really good at adopting it because they have a strong culture of teams sharing information and kind of looking out for each other, um, which I tend to think of as like a community, right? So I, I try to make sure that everybody had the autonomy to say, if you want to go try this this different technology to do the thing versus what we had kind of said as our standard, then um, go ahead and do it. Knock your socks off, but um, you know, kind of it, it. But you know, kind of coach and guide them along the way. I think you do need some kind of a strong leader in the middle of it um, while you're getting started, right? Um, to kind of work with all the teams and help them understand what's a good fit, and what's not a good fit. Um, why to do something and question again, I, I go back to kind of product thinking of question them. Why is that the most important thing you should be focused on right now? Um, you know, trying to new technology versus delivering business value. But if they did want to go off and do it and they felt, you know, very compelled to do it and it seemed to make sense. Um, then I would just ask them, Hey, sure, sure. Back. What have you learned with the community so that everybody can benefit from it? Um, so I think that's part of it. 
the other thing to think about too um, is just automation, right? So I think if you, I've, I've tended to kind of think this way for, for decades now where if you're going to ask a team to kind of abide by a rule or you know, I can use the dreaded governance uh, word, but if you want to kind of govern what, what teams do, then I think you need to kind of give something back as part of that. And, you know, I kind of think of that in generically as automation, right? So if I, if I can automate some painful steps for you and that kind of defines your technology stack for you, um, then if, at a click of a button, because to me, a lot of this goes to, you know, re- reducing time to first query, right? Within a lot of companies, it takes months and months to kind of get there. But if I can reduce time to first query for you, if you follow my you know, prescribed technology stack and you know, kind of the rules we prescribe, and if that works for you, then great, use it, right? Go ahead and you know, click the button, use the automation to kind of get where you need to be much quicker. Um, if you need something truly different than what we've automated, then you know, let's listen to the voices. And this is kind of comes back to that product thinking. You know, listen to the voices of the, of the data mesh community. And if they... If there's, if there's several of them that say, yeah, that would be beneficial to me too, well, great. Then add that to your automation suite. Right now, everybody can benefit from the clicking of the button and kind of getting the automation out of it. So I think a little bit of that kind of give and take um, is useful anytime you're trying to establish, hey, I want, I want a common set of operating principles and patterns and technologies. Um, and if I just prescribe it without automating, without giving something back, without deriving any kind of value for the, the, the user, then we're probably never going to kind of uh, stick with it. Yeah. Uh, Beth Bauer was recently on and she was talking about that automation and it's like, don't automate things unexpectedly for people. Like that's going to cause a lot of friction. But when you're hearing these things of, Hey, what, what is friction versus what is value add work? Even if it can feel like friction, if it like, you know, you can't automate away all toil because people think one-on-one conversation is toil and it's like, eh, but it's like find the actual friction points and then decide, is that positive friction? Is that something that actually generates value that there is friction there? Is it something that you can automate? Like I, I have this problem with the data contracts conversation of people think that all of data contracts can be automated. And it's like, but then there's no context exchange. I have to have documented everything. So I either have way too much of a burden on the producers to have documented everything or the consumers don't know what they're consuming, right? Like, and, or the producers don't know what the consumers are consuming where they could add additional value to them. Like, how are you not having these conversations? So, and, and I think, again, that that product thinking you're just talking about, it all flows through this of the more that you think about your, data operations and your data operating model as a product, not just creating data products, but like, how do you think about sourcing needs? How do you think about actually having these conversations and saying like, what would our, our consumers want? Like, let's figure out what that would do, I think is, is really valuable. Um, do you have, if, if someone were to come to you and ask you kind of, what would be your, what would be your advice to your former self? Like we can go in a lot of different directions to that, but maybe if you have a couple of things that, that you would, would talk about, especially on kind of that platform build side of if you could, like, what were the things that caused you the most pain? And either you just say, Hey, 
this thing is going to cause you pain, be prepared for it. Or here's a way that we got through this. And this was an anti-pattern that we tried or, or anything like that. I think those kind of advice to your past self is really interesting. Like for me, my advice to my past self about like what I've learned about data mesh is so much of you you have to listen to a lot of voices and then you have to actually go and talk to those people to dig into what they meant because you know I'm I'm doing a thing of Jamak's book a, a kind of read along companion and um it's like if you interpret Jamak in this way then what she just said I think is is wrong right you could you could argue whether it's right or wrong like, and I think, you know, one or a zero, you don't want anything to be one or a zero, but I think it's wrong. I don't think it's the right approach, but I think she meant this. And so if you interpret it in that way, then I think she's right. And so like that, that little bit of aspect of, I can't assume that the data is a one or a zero. I have to actually go and go, did you mean this thing? That's like that type of feedback that's that I would want to give myself that I've learned and that I hear constantly in the stories of people having that underlying of <laughs> what what would you actually want to tell yourself if you could go back and do that? Yeah, I was, well, I was gonna say jokingly, no, I, no, there's everything we did was perfect. It was it was wonderful. <laughs> so <laughs> zero pain. Yeah. Now I, I, you know one of the uh, sounds silly, kind of a silly lesson learned, but it was like. Um, you know, kind of early in the journey, it's, you know, you, you kind of paint the picture for people, you know, like, this is where we're going to go. And everybody nods their heads. And then you're thinking, okay, great. We're, you know, the team's going to make great progress now. And you, but you start seeing, you, you don't quite see the traction or, or, you know, kind of outcome or deliverable um, you know, production that you, you thought. And it, so it takes a little while for that to play out. And then you realize, okay, we're slipping and, you know, you can react to that in a few different ways of you know, kind of doubling down with the team and, and, uh, you know, jumping up and down and, and, uh, putting your, your best angry face on stern face on or whatever, um, or motivating the team. But I think, you know, the, the one thing I realized is they, you know, in, especially when you're in a product, you know, when, when you're in a product environment, truly understanding the target that you're trying to, you're asking them to hit, um, and it goes, it goes back to this, again, this, you know, what, what are these people, what's the mental model these teams have walking into this scenario? You know, if you have an existing team, they understand the context and domain and all that kind of stuff really well. Then again, yeah, you can get started really quickly. But if you're, if you're staffing a new team and you're bringing them along, it was one of those, I saw, you know, kind of another product manager do this with a team. And I'm like, ah, that's what they're missing. They don't, you know, they, they're nodding their heads and saying, yeah, yeah, I understand, but they truly don't understand. Right. So I think taking the time to explain the context that they're operating in within and, and, and why they're doing it, right? Not from a, the end why, right? So who is this going to benefit? Who is the end customer? How are they going to use this information? How is this going to empower teams? Um, you know, I think it's really, really critical. And it's something that I feel like I could have done better, probably in multiple settings. But I know even back to my, you know, couple companies ago, we would say um, there's, there's a difference between committed behavior and compliant behavior. You know, and I think like, like Bezos will call it maybe owner versus renter. Um, but it takes a bit of effort to really get them to be committed. You know, you can't just say, if you just go tell somebody to go do something, then they're compliant because they really don't know how to think for themselves. 
you haven't you haven't explained enough to them. Whereas if you really think about, okay, now here's why we're doing it, you know, in a way that they can they can truly understand it, digest it, and you and realize you may have to repeat it two or three times before they really understand it. And then, you know, and I, you know, I always like kind of, that's, that's when thankfully when people at least when you know, on these virtual environments, if you can see somebody's face, sometimes you can pick up that they're, they're nah, they don't understand. So you got to, you know, kind of pick on people, but you truly getting the entire team kind of committed and understanding what that target is, is really, really important from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I really like that committed versus compliant behavior because uh, one thing that keeps coming through um, in a lot of these conversations is how many times people say, yeah, yeah, I get it. And they don't get it. And, you know, you said you might have to repeat something two or three times. There, there was a study and I don't know how reliable it is or whatever, but they said you have to repeat something like 26 times before somebody gets it. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that's at the, the micro level, not the macro level that you have to do the same presentation 26 times. But in a lot of ways, you have to just be like, okay, this is what ownership actually means. And, and that you actually ask the conversation or the question of this, like, explain back to me what you think this means, right? Will you please do that for me? And then you see where you're mismatched and you might go, huh, your version is better than my version. Let's, let's, let's augment it. So now my, my vision is augmented to be your vision. That's what I have all the time with this podcast. If somebody says something and I go, whoa, okay, that's changed my mental model around this. That's awesome. Thank you for, for, you know, incrementing my mental model. But like, so many times we're not on the same page and we think we are simply because we've interpreted it in our own context instead of like, let's lay out what this actually means. And, and I think that's really important. And then I think the thing you're talking about, the, the timelines and the prioritizations and things, data work for most of these organizations isn't their priority. It is a priority because it helps empower them. It helps them to get towards these use cases to drive value. But it's not ever going to be the number one priority, even if that use case is the number one priority, actually doing the other aspects around it are probably always going to be higher. So like enabling them to get to focus on the things that matter is, is important. But like uh, uh, Radha Rishani was on and she was talking about when we actually have a use case, we talk and we share the prioritizations and we're having these constant meetings. And if something is slipping, it becomes very evident. And we're letting the people who are the users actually set those prioritizations. So it's like, why is this timeline slipping? Well, it's because you changed from wanting this to be in this way to wanting it to be in this way, or, or because you added this extra requirement. And so it's like, you're, you're having a direct impact on it, but they're like informed and they're the ones that made that decision. And it's not like, you're the one that did this. It's like, Hey, like we have to be as a team, if we're trying to do this thing, uh, you know, if we're trying to, um, you know, put together a mural or whatever, and all of a sudden you need a redesign of the big picture. Okay. That's going to change like how things work, or we might have to paint over something, or we might have to change the, these different aspects. So I like a lot of, of kind of what, what you're saying there, because I think it's really important. One thing that I, I, Writing is kind of the first part of the the panel summary, uh, which you'll you'll, you'll get the uh, write up relatively soon. But um, the a big aspect of that is empathy for yourself and empathy for others. 
And I think we always talk about that empathy for others, but that empathy for yourself, that this is hard, that you're not going to get it right, that this is not going to be perfect is so crucial for a lot of the things. And I'm getting that from, from a lot of what you're saying. So, um, is there anything else that you would, if somebody came to you and said, what's your advice to me? What, what would be the, the, the thing? I mean, it's, it's okay if the answer is, is, you, you know, you've kind of walked through a lot of it, but is there anything else where you'd say, I really think you, you want to make sure you avoid this or that you do this or that you, you know, go and decompress. I offer data mesh therapy literally because people, especially leaders are like, I just need to decompress. I need to talk to somebody about this, that it's not all on your own shoulders and that it's not live or, or, or die by you. It's not, you're not, every little thing isn't make or break, but like, do you have anything that you'd kind of add to, to how people talk about that? Um, yeah, I think I got one, but I, for me, I think if, if you spend enough time in an, in an environment, um, at least for me, you, you kind of develop this decision tree in your head, right? And when someone says, hey, let's go do X, and you're like, mm, no. You know, and it, it could be, it, it, there's like a dozen different reasons, but you kind of just run through that this decision matrix, and it could be because that part of the company is not open for change, or that part of the company is just buried in uh, some huge thing they're doing so you're never going to you know so even if you build it and hand it to them they're never going to use it because they just can't pay attention to it um as an example or um again back to those kind of those dimensions of a, of a product but you know this this the the feasibility of it i mean to to build it may cost so much it just isn't worth a great idea but you can spend so much time building it that's or um you know one for if you're building like data oriented products it's like where are you going to source the data from Right. And is that, is that data, you know, I, I really think that um, I got this from somewhere else. So it wasn't my, wasn't my thought, but, but I agree with that. I think that um, as much as I love data science and, you know, kind of built data science teams and those outcomes, I think the AI models are going to be somewhat of the commodity of the future, because I think, so if you look around, I mean, there's all kinds of tools and platforms and technologies you can use to generate your model. What do they, what do they generate the model off of? They generate off of, off of data, right? So if all the data is the same, the models are all going to be the same for the most part would be similar enough where, you know, shades of gray from one another, but you know, the, the, the team that can build that proprietary data set, right. Can it go after data for whatever domain you may be operating within um, and say, okay, I'm the only company that has this data, you know, let's say in whatever in automotive um, that team's going to be, you know, kind of if, if they can take advantage of it, but I just think you have to think about all of those different dimensions of, you know, do you have the right skill sets, um, you know, budget. So all those things kind of come into play. But one, I guess if I had to pick one, and it was, I was actually going to ask the question of you, is, you know, how do, you know, do, do teams employ product managers on their data mesh initiatives? Because I know for me, initially, that was a bit of a head scratcher. It's, it's, it's a very difficult question. I'm, I've got um, a panel that I'm working to put together on of data product managers because, and I think there's data product managers and then there's data product management. And I think you almost have to have both uh, because product management skills are not embedded into how this all works. So you have to have product management kind of overseeing this as part of the software 
practice, right? That or the engineering practice that now includes software and data engineering and not what people think of traditionally as data engineering, but I think you get what I mean by that. And so you have to have that oversight of how product management plays into it. And then you have to have that data product manager which might be a role in and of itself, or it might be, I think it becomes responsibility under the product management org often, but it might also be the tech lead is the data product manager. And I think every, it's kind of like with agile, where if you try and have too much ceremony for every team and you say, this is the way every team should work, it doesn't work. And so you have to be comfortable throwing things against the wall, which people don't like that answer. But the more that I'm finding that people that are being successful on on the data product, on product management and, and that applying it to data are the ones where they go, what are my capabilities in this team? Do I need to bring in external capabilities or do I have the capabilities because my need isn't that high or I've got somebody that can step up and do this and they can do certain aspects. So I think you need to make sure very, very strongly that that product management capability is in each data product creation type of team. But then you also definitely need that extra layer on top when you think about at the entire domain level or at the multi-domain level as to how does this start to play together? Because otherwise you've just got people that are building high quality data silos. And that's where I think the, the it really starts to break down if you don't have strong product management. And I think that's where you stop to say, this isn't data product management. This is product management and data is just the component, but you're just treating it like extra parts of software. And that extra layer, I think, is missed a lot of times. I'd love to hear kind of what your experience was and how you were thinking about that. But that second layer at the at the mesh experience plane at the kind of greater mesh level of how does this all fit together? How are we managing interoperability? How are we evolving that? Is that product management from a data governance perspective? Probably. How do you actually embed somebody that's a product manager into data governance to make sure that that's all playing together well? I don't know. I haven't seen at the specific level, but that seems to be the pattern that's coming through a lot. But I'd love to hear kind of your experience and what, what your thoughts are as well. Yeah, because I, I mean, to me, I think, you know, shout out to all my product manager friends out there, but I think they're really, especially the good ones, right? I mean, you get a good, when you're working with, a, I love working with really good, smart product managers because um, they really understand the domain well, right? And I was always fascinated with talking to a, uh, a company or a startup and someone would say something and I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. Well, that, and almost invariably, that person, that product manager, um, was a domain expert, right? So somebody that came from the industry, kind of converted, you know, kind of being a product manager, but they had that domain understanding. Um, and not, you know, this the obviously again the the, the mesh journey is kind of new. So uh, I know if, for me it was kind of a question mark of who do you, how do I find one of these people, right? Can they even help me? Um, and honestly, I think in many cases you just kind of learn that if if you're, you know, if you if you really feel, feel like you're headed in the right direction, you can figure it out. Um, kind of that that kind of that push and pull that you can have within your own team as a leader, um, and then you know, and then really you know having open conversations and 
holding, you know, putting something out there and, and really kind of really digging into it and, and debating it uh, as far as what is the right thing to focus on. Um, and so I think product from a software or even physical product, that's kind of natural for people to think about it that way. But, you know, data as a product, I think I found myself, you know, I found myself kind of coaching people on how to use data as a product. Maybe I'll try an example and see if this, see if this resonates with you or not. But so if you think about, you know, just a listing of, let's go with car dealers, right? So a listing of car dealers in your area. Um, and if you just had that in a data set, you could say, okay, that's nominally valuable. It could, Google could use it, right, for their maps, you know, kind of knowing like there's, I have the automotive, automotive dealership registry and say, I own that, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell that to people. Like, well, who's going to buy that? Well, I guess anybody that wants an index of, you know, dealerships and, and I can say, hey, the value that I bring is I, I'm always, every day I go out there and look at them all and make sure they're really physically there. And so if a new one pops up or one goes away, my list will be the most accurate. Okay, great. So not really all that valuable, right? So now if I say, um, I'm going to start monitoring foot traffic in all the dealerships, right? So now I can tell you how many people enter and leave. Um, maybe I can do surveys, right, of the customers so I can get customer sentiment. Um, Maybe I can get signals on their, you know, kind of how their financing works, um, you know, what types of cars they finance, right? So now, so if, you know, if I encapsulate all that behind the walls of a kind of an automotive dealership data product, well, I think interrogating that or being able to plug that in would be immensely useful to a lot of different, you know, areas, whether that's I'm getting a car loan, I want to, you know, I want to use it to help me select the car dealership I want to go to, um, you know, who's, I want to know what time is best to go or you know, not go to this dealership because they have high foot traffic. But I just think, you know, that's, to me, that's kind of, I may have made, made it too big of a data product, but to me, that's, you know, we're really thinking about data as a product. And I think very often we just look at a data set and we think about serving that data set. And that, that to me is not really that valuable, but I think when you can really, again, I think you have to apply that domain understanding. So that's why I think you need people that understand the domain and then you kind of build these layers. I, you know, I kind of think of this kind of concentric circles of value, right? So the nucleus is really this, that list, that data set. But from when you start building out, you know, that, that's what I would expect a product manager to do. What kind of a data product manager is really thinking about you know, interviewing all the potential consumers of this data and understanding the big problems that they deal with that could you know, make their businesses better. Um, and then kind of somehow figuring out how to add that data to your data set and kind of enriching it. And building it into a true kind of product. Or I think what you're talking about there is also your data product portfolio, right? Where you think about your data product suite, where you go, should this be another data product or not? That's not necessarily the most important question. It's like, do we have coverage of what data we should be sharing? You know, there's the old Pat Helland data on the inside, data on the outside, right? The data that is just to the domain that they're using just for the operations of the domain that's not of use to anybody else, that's data on the inside. Data on the outside is the data that would be helpful, not necessarily the data you are sharing, but the data that would be helpful. And how do you assess what's what's on the inside, what's on the outside, what might be on the threshold? You know, hey, we tried sharing this and nobody used it. So, you know, why didn't anybody use it or whatever? But like, and going and finding the white space that you need to serve some data into and also like creating this, um, this back and forth mechanism for actually understanding what are your needs 
out there, like what could drive additional value and that you have a back and forth instead of where I'm seeing a lot of organizations with data mesh have issues is they um, have, they're, they're telling their teams that they have to share all of their data and those teams don't know what to share. Right. And so there's no bridging solution between sharing all your data and what should we actually share? And so they're sharing things and people aren't consuming them. Why is that? Don't know. Is that because things aren't labeled well? Is that because they're not structured in a way that they are? Is it because they're putting out things that people don't want to use? I, I'm not sure, but every single one that I've talked to leads to lower than expected consumption. So I think a lot of what you're talking there is just like understanding your problem area. <laughs> how do we drive value, whether it's for our own domain, whether it's for other domains, like how do we actually exchange the context around what would be valuable and then drive to something of value. That's, that's just product management. And, and so it's not just like that there's product management around data. It's around the whole function of what information we share, right? Data is just a vehicle for sharing information, sharing context, sharing what's, what's going on in the world and how we can react to it, whether it's, you know, informational or it's like, uh, you know, how we're doing or whether it's opportunities or it's a predictive model or whatever, but that we need to think about that information sharing and we just don't. And and I don't know how to make it a better analogy because it's very, very complicated to, <laughs> to think about that in a deeper way. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things that you made me think of is I just Part of me wonders if we're shifting away from the, I, I think, I don't know where I heard this, but someone said, I'm no longer pursuing the single source of truth. You know, and I'm like, you know, it, it, it kind of makes me as a, you know, kind of a data professional that's been at this for a while. It's a bit cringy, right? It's a bit like, ooh, I don't know if I'm really comfortable with that. Um, but I really think it's, it, it just feels like something we've been after for so long that and not saying that some companies haven't achieved it, right? But I just know many are still pursuing it, right? And and I think that along with the, I think during during the data lake era, it was like I have to take all the company's data; it all has to be here. And I'm like, you know, you know, like oh yeah, it makes sense. And then after a while, it's like why why are we doing that? Nobody's using it, right? So I think it's kind of sorry looping looping back to one of your you know earlier questions around um, you know, kind of doing things different. I think it's I think it was Stephen King who said, kill your darlings, right? So I think he has, he has a habit of, you know, creating characters and killing them off, right? And you're like, oh, um, but I think, you know, not, not that data is a story, but I think it's, a, I think ultimately you have to be really, you have to be conscious of the teams where you feel like, yeah, that's really not, you know, okay, sure, go try it. But if, if, if it's not adding value, kill it. Because we have, there's way too much to focus on now, right? We can't, we can't just kind of, it, you confuse activity for outcome, right? And and I just think we can't can't afford to do that, um, especially at the pace things are moving. Yeah, Jamak in the book talks about um, most relevant source or most reliable source of truth, and so she talks more about re relevant. But I think that reliable as well, um, because to me, so like ITV was on, Scott Hawkins was on, and he was talking about they were so they're a. Um, media provider, you know, in the UK and they do some streaming, they do, you know, um, cable or over the top, you know, over the airwaves and they do all sorts of different things. 
and they were trying to figure out one single unique identifier for every customer. And they got to where they were comfortable that they're at 98% coverage. And the cost of getting to 98% coverage where they go, we're, we're confident for 98% of the time that this is the individual, this is the individual household or this specific person, and that we've got that coverage. Then they looked at the cost of going from 98 to 99%. And it was the same cost of going from zero to 98% was the cost of going from 98 to 99. And so exactly yeah. what you're talking about of how much can I trust this? I need to know that. That's how I actually engender trust is how much can I trust this? That actually is the, the question of how reliable is this? Well, if that's known and that's understood and that we stop thinking of data as a one or a zero of right or wrong, but we think of how reliable, how, you know, how right do I think this is? Because sometimes the data lies, right? Um, there's the um, Pastafarianism, you know, the church of the flying spaghetti monster. They have this, um, this figure of global uh, temperatures and number of pirates, uh, and so it's, you know, number of global pirates is going down and global temperatures are going up and it's like perfectly correlated, right? Or, or just about. And so it's like, obviously these two things are related. So we need um, more pirates because it'll drive down the the overall global temperatures <laughs> and we can fight global warming. Um, and so, you know, it's correlation causation. I, I mentioned the XKCD about that, that uh, correlation causation a lot, but exactly what you're talking about of, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to demean people that are looking for that single source of truth, but it's a little bit of, okay, when the dog is chasing its tail, have you ever seen a dog when it catches its tail finally, and then it just kind of shuts down because it doesn't know what to do? Okay. You have created the source of truth. Okay. Now everything you do is about making sure that that source of truth does not ever break. And so it becomes overly and more rigid and you can't respond to anything new that's coming up. That's, that's new potential things. You know, um, you think about like e-commerce and you go, what is somebody's address? And you're like, well, is it the shipping address? Is it the billing address? Can they have multiple shipping addresses, multiple billing addresses? Cause they have multiple credit cards on the same account. You know, what, what do you mean by address? And you go, well, my single source of truth, like I want it to be the single fit. And it's like, but there isn't one. There's, there's. What are you actually trying to achieve? So I think exactly what you're talking about of these things that we've held as self-evident that these will mean that we reach nirvana, that we all of a sudden have been chasing these things for so much value, and then we catch our tail and realize, okay, I've got a tail in my mouth, <laughs> and it's hurting me because <laughs> I'm biting onto my own tail because I'm spending so much effort and time on these things. I don't know that the analogy really goes that well, but I think exactly <laughs> what you're saying there. Um, I don't know the question that I want to ask about that, but like, how are you feeling about that kind of this old world way of thinking? And, and that when people do say you've got to throw out everything that you know, or you've got to reevaluate everything that you know, that's scary, right? You've been doing this for a long time. And so we have to have empathy around that. But it's also like, like, you know, um, the Marie Kondo, does this spark value for you? You know, does this spark joy? If it doesn't, you should get rid of it. You know, I, I don't know if you saw that thing on Netflix of Marie Kondo where she was like helping people clean out their closets and stuff. But yeah, um, but it's like, does this spark value? It's a provocative question. It's a question that makes people question, 
has everything I've been doing historically not been a value? And it's like, no, it's just, we might have found a better way. So do we want to evaluate that? And so like, but as somebody who's been doing this for a lot longer, I'd love to hear kind of how that makes you feel <laughs> that keeps coming up. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, it's, it's, um, I found I find that people, um, I mean, critical thinking has to come into play. And I, and I, and I, and I sometimes ask people like, what's, what's the decision criteria that you use to make that decision, right. Or, you know, to, you know, to, to make the recommendation. Cause I think very often, unfortunately, we're just very reactive, you know, as humans, we just, we kind of, you know, either we want to, whatever, I got a hammer and you ask me what tool I need to, well, of course it's a hammer, right. And, and not like, wait, 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 what do you, what do you show me the thing you're trying to fasten? Okay. Let me understand your world a little bit. Uh, let me understand the conditions of what you're trying to do. And, oh yeah. I, I, okay. I wouldn't recommend him, but people, we don't do that generally. A lot of people don't do that in the business world. Um, and I just think, you know, so for me, um, I tend not to think about it. You know, nothing's like just absolutes. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, you're going to miss something if you just go to, you know, everything needs to be centralized. Everything needs to be decentralized. So, um, I think really making sure you have, you know, someone with experience, you know, in, in, in that, you know, that leadership role, um, is going to be critical for success. Um, and then, you know, obviously, hopefully then they think through things in this kind of, you know, multi, multi-dimensional way. Um, because I do think is you're implementing, and this goes for any solution, but you know, especially these kind of newer, on, you know, we're still learning a lot about um, data meshes, right? So we'll, we'll figure out, okay, so how do you split nodes? How do you combine nodes? When do you collapse nodes? When do you kill nodes? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the, you know, a great example, um, you know, I think a really good example of a lot, the Achilles heel of a lot of data initiatives, this is more on the BINA side versus the product side, but um, is, you know, generally, like if, if you're building out a new data solution where now you're calculating things for the business, um, you know, new technology, new platform could be a mesh, whatever. You're, you're going to change some of the numbers, right? So some numbers they're using today to run their business are going to be different, right? Now, what are you going to do to get that? So now if you just told them the way they're running their business, so you're not as profitable as you thought you were, right? What, what, what are they going to say? They're going to, you're, you're going to get massive resistance, right? So, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, experience tells you so that you can kind of, you know, kind of navigate some of that stuff up front or, yeah, we're not going to start there. We're going to start over here because I know that they don't, Maybe they don't have anything in place. We're not going to challenge, you know, the status quo here. But I just think, um, yeah, not not just saying it's it's A or B or, um, you know, not being kind of just absolute, but really thinking about the context, thinking about the domain, uh, bringing in people with the right level of experience to kind of lead and kind of lead that initiative is going to make a big difference. Yeah, I I think we've got kind of a state and steady approach. I think it's it's a reasonable approach. I think a lot of people expect data mesh enthusiasts to want to charge into everything versus like, no, we, we have to take our time. We have to think about this thing, but we can't be afraid of the unknown because that can be where value is. And it can be scary. It can be frightening. I, or I guess it's not that you can't be afraid. It's like, uh, what is courage? It's not that you're not afraid. It's that you do the thing despite being afraid. And that's kind of what we need is to be like, 
how do we be courageous? How do we try these new things? How do we challenge age old things? And we might find that the way that we've been doing it for 40 years in this one specific aspect is still the right way. And we might find that this thing that we've tried that we thought was was really working, you know, big data that we tried mm-hmm. that we thought was really working and it just hasn't delivered on the the promises of it. Um, I think it's really uh, an interesting um, kind of conversation piece. So but I mean, we've covered a whole heck of a lot of things. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to or kind of any any note that you'd kind of want to wrap the episode up on? Um, maybe just, uh, two points. Um, I'll say one is, is, you know, be incremental, right? I think, you know, in my experience, especially data professionals, they like, well, no, I can't release the product until it's all, all of the columns and all the rows are perfect. Right. And I'm like, and again, back to being, you know, kind of critically thinking through and being situational. If you were, you know, I tell my data science team, if if you're going to you know, we weren't building models for stock market, but but if you're going to build me a model that made me five percent better at stock picking, I would take that tomorrow. Don't don't wait for six months until you give me the hundred percent model because I can get I can get five percent today and ten percent tomorrow. You know, and I'm going to get better and better over time. Um, if you're deploying a model for an autonomous vehicle, well, yeah, I mean you you can't be five percent accurate and then you know put it in the car, right? But I, so I think situation matters, but I think there's many scenarios where um, data professionals just aren't thinking about things in an incremental manner. Kind of software is kind of that way, right? We really think about the features we can release and which ones are the most important. We kind of layer them on over time. Um, but again, I think um, data professionals could could definitely learn from that. And then I think the other um, the other one I kind of just like to mention too is the I think this 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 idea of empowerment. Let me say is is very powerful. Right. And um, I think there's this and I don't think, frankly, I don't, I don't know that we can understand it, is, is just the human mind. When you when you when you start opening things up to you know, tens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of people, I think the things they will create um, will be things that that, you know, that you just hadn't thought of. Now, maybe a lot of them aren't valuable. Right. And that's, again, where you need to kind of kill your darlings. But I think the other ones that are really valuable maybe never would have been thought of if you, if you kind of have this total, you know, this real um, control over them. And again, it needs to be situational. You don't want to be creative with your internal financial metrics, right? <laughs> or, or somebody's going to go to go to prison, right? But it, it's like, but things where you can apply that autonomy and that empowerment where they can go and create, you know, let them go create, right? But those are kind of the two things I think of. Even with the, the car, the autonomous car, I think, you can be like, well, we're going to deploy it on an RC car and we're going to bump into things True. in the parking lot and that we're going to like, yeah. we, we, we lower the stakes. We make this so that if something isn't perfect, that's not, not a value, right? Not perfect can still deliver a ton of value and it gets you closer to good quicker, right? It starts out as okay. You know, don't start out with absolutely no bottom basement quality, you kind of have to think about how, what you have to deliver. That's okay. But then you put it in front of somebody and you go, is this what you're thinking? Right? Like, you know, uh, I'm working, um, uh, on this new company with the logo design and stuff. And, uh, you know, I haven't really started working with somebody on it, but when I did past logo designs for the podcast and stuff, like 
getting something in front of me. And the first thing that, that this person put in front of me, I, I got what they were going for, but it looked horrible. Like I was terrified by, it. I was just like, what that, I don't even get what this is. Like it just, it, and so, but we quickly iterated towards something good. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I really like that. Those two uh, good ways to wrap is thinking about like, how do we empower people? How do we make people feel like they can actually deliver that incremental value and that, that, that incremental is, oh God, that is, that is the crucial aspect of data mesh. But um, I'm sure there's going to be tons of people that would love to follow up with you. Uh, anything specific you'd like them to follow up about? Where's kind of the best place? You know, typically people say LinkedIn, but is there any, any specific thing that you'd like people kind of following up or a place? Um, yeah, these days I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So that's a great place. Um, I don't know if, if you have show notes or not. I can always kind of share a link there. Scott, so that'll that'll work. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, over time, I've I've taken calls from really well known companies who are trying to do the mesh thing, and they're just like, How, you know, coach me through this, right? And I'm always happy to do that. Uh, you know, data science is another passionate area of mine, so just kind of um, had a lot of scars for trying to, you know, help help navigate for a lot of the same reasons we're talking about here. I mean, di- very different context, but. Um, you know, always, always happy to have conversations there and just, just watch for, I guess for me, so I'm, I'm working on something new. I hope that, you know, I can kind of disclose it in, I don't know, two to four weeks, something like that. But, um, you know, I'd love to get some feedback, but it's, it's a little bit in that kind of generative AI space, but I think that's the thing that most has me, has me excited most right now is if I really think this is going to change a lot of, you know, a lot of jobs, a lot of businesses, a lot of industries. And it, it comes back to that, almost that real principle. I think the, the bar has been so um, has been lowered so far now. Because think about it, if you want to create a software product or if you wanted to, um, you know, it, it's going to you know hit a lot of the creative stuff initially. But I think it'll open up a lot of doors for people because I think you can, you know, if you if you give a million people now access to tools that let's say you know only you know big media companies had or big software companies had. I mean, the things that people are going to create. Again, some of them won't be great, but some of them would be great, right? And I think uh, just encouraging everybody to kind of pay attention to what's happening because I think it's going to be, you know, pretty disruptive. Yeah, yeah, no, totally agree. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Mike. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Mike Alvarez, who's the former VP of Digital Services, leading the Data Mesh implementation at a large healthcare distribution company, and he is now working on his own startup. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, 
you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.